Eisen, and welcome to Ring Talk. Today, we're going to discuss a fight, the, the first, I guess, modern world heavyweight title fight that took place September 7th, 1892 in New Orleans. And by the way, that date, September 7th, 1892, probably a date where my daughter would say that I was born because she thinks I'm very old. So when she was, you know, in, in university and they'd ask her about Abraham Lincoln, she would say, she bring my dad in. He knew him. So not quite that old. September 7th, 1892, New Orleans, defending champion John L. Sullivan hadn't fought in three years and he defended against the young James J. Corbett. Now, Sullivan, um, I've always had a big problem with. Now, no, no person, except for certain examples in history where somebody's pure evil, is completely, you know, white or black. It doesn't work that way. Sullivan was an interesting character. He was, he was an alcoholic. He was boastful. A lot of Sullivan's attitude and the way he treated people, especially black fighters, he disliked black fighters, referred to them to their face by using the N-word. And uh, he, he did not like black fighters. And he said, I'll never defend against the Negro. And I, I never have, and I never will. And he didn't. So I can't categorically, categorically call him the first ever world heavyweight champion because there were other black fighters around then. Peter Jackson, who was the best heavyweight in the world, and George Godfrey from Charlottetown, uh, Prince Edward Island, and he wouldn't fight them. And Godfrey and Sullivan were both the same size. They're both 5'10". Sullivan would weigh in at 196, Godfrey about 175. Godfrey challenged him twice, once at Madison Square Garden and once at a, uh, they were supposed to fight on a floating barge or in a gym in Boston. And both times the police arrived to break it up, but it was found out years later that it was Sullivan who called the police to do it. What Did he not fight them out of fear? That's hard to say. That's very hard to say because Sullivan really didn't know what fear was. Sullivan just didn't want to fight a black person because he thought, as he said, why would I lower myself to their level and become one of them? And that's a very racist, vile thing to say. But Sullivan's attitude was informed because of the time in which he was born and lived. He was born in 1858 in Boston, Massachusetts. And this is just before the Civil War. James J. Corbett was born in 1866, a year after the Civil War. And what happened after the Civil War ended in 1865 was Reconstruction. And a lot of former slaves moved north, New York, Boston, and cities all along the East Coast, and also to California, San Francisco, because Corbett was as much of a bigot as Sullivan was, and he kept the color line as well, as did some black fighters. But a lot of the slaves were at that point, the Irish American immigrants felt that they were being displaced from their jobs by these slaves who would work for less. It wasn't that they were working for less, it's that they'd been slaves. To get paid at all was incredible to them. So no one had more hatred and expressed it violently towards the former slaves and African-Americans in general than immigrant Irish-Americans. And this was a big problem. There were a lot of riots. And this is the milieu in which both men came up. So Sullivan was born to immigrant parents who came over from Cork, Ireland. And he wasn't really that good in school. He did, I mean, he did all right. He wasn't a stupid man. He just was bored. He didn't want to be there. When the teacher would try to discipline him, he disciplined the teacher. 
he was only 5'10", but he had fists the size of the Chrysler building. I mean, he was phenomenally strong. And so he would engage in a lot of street fights as a teenager. And, you know, you have to understand, Sullivan was 5'10", 5'10 and a half, by the time he was 12 or 13. And when he would engage in street fights, he might fight a guy and beat him, and then the guy's gang would appear. But unlike in most situations where the guy would then run, Sullivan never ran. He just stood there and said, I'm not afraid of any of you. I'll beat you all up. And he often would. He was that, his strength was incredible. So he embarks on his, on his uh, career, and he's fighting in fights around Boston and places around Massachusetts. And he's making, picking up $100 here, $50 here. And he starts to do well, makes a trip to New York, and gets known and starts fighting around New York. And eventually, in 1882, he fights Patty Ryan in, in Mississippi for the world title. It was known as the American heavyweight title. And the boxing that Sullivan engaged in is not the boxing that we know today that we, we've seen this week. It's not it's not Nino Denaire against Inoue or Edward Berlanga last night, you know, or Devin Haney, that brilliant fight against George Cambosis. That was years in the future. Most of Sullivan's fights, you'll see in the record book, was LPRR. That's what it said, London Prize Ring Rules. Most of his fights you won't find on box rec or, or very few other places. He had hundreds of fights and exhibitions which were held under London Prize Ring Rules. And it's almost impossible. People are attempting to, and they might be able to, find every fight, but it's next to impossible. London Prize Ring rules were started by Jack Broughton. Now, Broughton or Broughton, he started them around 1720, 1722, and or around that area, the first two centuries of the 1700s, first two decades, excuse me. And in those first two decades, a lot of fighters were getting killed in bare knuckle fights. And so what he did was, he said, there's got to be a set of rules. Because it was almost like, it, it was uh, UFC. A guy would go down, and you could stomp him, pound him, headbutt him, and guys were dying. And the public wasn't liking this. They liked the regular stand-up and fight. So he brought in a series of rules. And those rules existed from around 1722 until 1892, 170 years. That was the first modern era of boxing. So when Sullivan fought... There were no such thing. There's no such thing as three-minute rounds. It didn't exist. A round ended when a person was knocked down, thrown down, or just dove to the ground to avoid punishment. So a round could be 15 seconds. You hit a guy, he goes down, round's over. Or a round could last 90 minutes. That's why some fights five, six, seven hours. Also, they didn't have stools in the corner. When you went back to the corner, your, one of your cornermen would be on all fours. You sit on his back or be on one knee and you'd sit on his knee. That's how it worked back then. There was no such thing as, you know, uh, working. I mean, they would try to work on cuts, but they didn't know what they were doing. Fighters in between rounds were given tea and whiskey to recover. And it was bare knuckles and you would fight outside. And there were two kinds of fighting. There, there was fighting outside where you either had four ring posts and and two rings. So you'd have the inner ring and four more ring posts in the outer ring, and that was to keep fans of fighters away. Because if your fighter was losing, 
then the fans would often climb over the ropes and attack in mass the fighter that was winning, break his fingers, break his arms, or worse. So that was quite common. And going to those fights was dangerous because you could get mugged, you could get killed. So, and also you have to remember, boxing was not legal then. It wasn't legal in England. It was outlawed in 21 states in the United States. It was completely outlawed in France. Fights were still held in those countries, but they had to pay off the local constabulary, the police, to get the fights done. So, Sullivan beats Patty Ryan in Mississippi, where boxing was banned, but they paid people off. They went to a secret location. He's the American heavyweight champion, 1882. Sullivan's real contribution to the sport of boxing is the fact that he, he popularized it all over the world. He made it global because he was larger than life. He'd walk into a bar and say, I can lick any son of a bitch in the house. And he could. He was that good. And he was strong, and he was a, um, a prolific alcoholic. When they say, drink a man under the table, that was Sullivan. He could sit there and down two, three, four, five bottles of gin or whiskey. His, his ability to absorb alcohol, which destroyed him, was prodigious. Also, we get another term. You know the term when a politician's entering a race, they say he's throwing his hat in the ring. This is what happened in the London prize ring rules, where you would approach the ring and take off your top hat, throw it into the ring meaning I'm here and I'm willing to fight. Also, back then, when a fight had to start, they'd have a little, like a pitcher's, you know, on the pitcher's mound, they have the rubber. They'd have like that on in the middle of the ring, and you'd have to toe the scratch. Up to scratch, my friend Tony G, the best bare-knuckle boxing historian on the planet, wrote a wonderful book about those times. You'd have, Both fighters would have to go up and toe the scratch. Now, when you got knocked down... You had 30 seconds to get up on your own and toe the scratch. Put your foot on it to let them know you were ready to continue. However, most of the time, the handlers would help. Weren't supposed to. Hard to get referees. Referees were, were usually either, some had been referees before, but a lot of them were gamblers. A lot of them were out and out crooks. And a lot of fights didn't come off because they just couldn't agree on the right referee. So you have Sullivan beating... Patty Ryan, and he goes, he was really one of, not the first, but the first, I guess, American who started out doing theater shows where he's making a lot of money doing um, uh, his play. And he didn't play ever. He was a terrible actor. And he made a lot of money off it in the United States. He went to Australia. It didn't go well. He was booed off stage everywhere he went because they criticized him for his acting ability. They weren't impressed by the fact that it was John O'Sullivan because they thought, you know, Peter Jackson's the best fighter in the world and you're not going to fight him. So Sullivan holds the title for 10 years, which was a long, long time. And he, he had basically two, he had several title defenses, but he had some notable ones. He fought a guy named Charlie Mitchell from Britain. He hated Mitchell more than any other man. Mitchell knew how to get under his skin, and he would say things to him like, I saw your wife last night. She's really a true blonde, I, I understand. Things like that. And, you know, he Sullivan returning to Curly from the Three Stooges with the steam coming out of his ears and hitting himself in the face. He'd have to be restrained. He literally wanted to hurt Mitchell badly. In fact, they, he said he was the only man in my career that I wanted to end his life. I was intentionally trying to kill him. So, he fights Mitchell, first Madison Square Garden. Mitchell comes out and drops him. 
And Sullivan's surprised. Sullivan said no one dropped him except a minor named Jack Hogan years before, but that wasn't true. So Sullivan gets dropped by Mitchell. He gets up and he starts pounding Mitchell, drops Mitchell, and then the second round drops him a bunch of times. And the third round, he's got him against the ropes and he's beating him relentlessly. He won't knock him out because he wants to destroy him and punish him as much as possible. And after the third round, the referee just says, that, that's it. If it goes on any further, you'll kill him. Four or five years later, they meet in Chantilly, France, because they weren't able to fight in England for fear of the fact that a mob in favor of Mitchell would attack Sullivan. So they fight. It's a 39-round fight, but it takes three hours and ten minutes, and it's fought in unbelievable blizzard conditions. And it's snowing, Sullivan's turning blue, and of course, in, the, in those days in boxing, the London prize ring rules, fighters wore cleats, like baseball players. So they had metal on the bottom of their shoes. And you know how fighters sometimes step on each other's feet. Well, Mitchell stepped on Sullivan's foot, which is in a black boot, and spiked him right through the foot, and the boot is filled up with blood. So Sullivan had a bloody eye. His cornerman had to suck the blood out of his eye after one of the rounds. It was a brutal fight. And after 39 rounds, which, as I said, lasted well over three hours, Representatives of both men met and decided that they would just, they would say they were willing to accept the draw because both of them had broken knuckles, broken fingers, broken nose, and mouthpieces for fighters didn't come in until Ted Kidd Lewis, you know, 1912, 1914. And he was looked down upon for that. They called him a sissy. So fighters had their lips shredded. They were really in terrible shape, and it took months and months, six months or more to recover from that fight. But he beats Mitchell, and he has his biggest fight ever in Mississippi, again, against Jake Kilrain, who was a pallbearer at Sullivan's funeral years later. That fight went 75 rounds. The temperature was about 104 degrees. It was blistering hot. The man's, both fighters' skin was peeling. And they were just taking turns pounding each other. And around the 39th, 40th round, Sullivan goes to his corner and throws up. And Atten stands up and says, I feel fantastic. And turns around and the fight turns and he just pounds the life out of Jake Kilray. Not literally, though. Sullivan had been drinking tea and whiskey between each round. And when he threw up, one of his friends joked, he threw up the tea. He kept down the whiskey. So this fight rages on. It's so blistering hot that People sitting in the wooden stands, the pine, the sap is coming out, and it's burning through their clothing. They're standing up, and their rear ends are exposed, men and women, because it's ripping their clothes apart. They keep fighting, and after the 75th round, Sullivan just won't quit. Kilrain goes to his corner where a doctor comes over and says, Mr. Kilrain, if you go out for the next round, you will most surely die. And Kilrain quits. He can't even hold his head up, can't hold his arms up. He has to be carried back to the hotel where they were staying. Sullivan wins. He's triumphant. That was the last great victory of his career. But after that fight, he said, that's it. I will never again fight a bare-knuckles fight. I will never fight under London prize ring rules. Because then, under London prize ring rules, you could put a guy in a headlock and hit him. You could throw him over your hip. You could elbow him. 
In fact, when he fought Charlie Mitchell in France, he'd knock him down, and then he'd jump in the air and land on his head with his knees or his feet. That was illegal, but the referee wouldn't do anything about it. Fighters sometimes had their eyes gouged out. It was not what we call boxing today. Anything went. So he said, from now on, I only fight under the Barkers, the Queensbury rules with gloves, three-minute rounds, and a referee agreed upon by both parties. Sullivan is famous by this time. People in, in Boston have given him this famous belt. The Police Gazette, which was like the Ring magazine back then, proclaimed they hated him. So they always proclaimed Charlie Mitchell as the champion, Jake Corain as the champion. But after Sullivan beat Corain, they had to admit that he was the best in the world. James J. Corbett was born in San Francisco in 1866. And the thing about Corbett, Corbett was 6'1". And when he they weighed in, you know, Sullivan weighed in at 196, Corbett at 192. But Corbett really was 172. He had a 20-pound weight in his pocket. Corbett was always in shape. Corbett was one of the most intensely disliked fighters by other fighters in boxing history. In the book on Corbett that I read by Armin Fields, they mention how there were two classes of Irish then in San Francisco. There was the lace curtain Irish, the elite, and the shanty Irish or the bog Irish, who were the immigrant, like John L. Sullivan. So Corbett always looked down on Sullivan. Corbett was a bit of a dandy. He was considered a sex symbol in his time. He had a very good education at Sacred Hearts High School in San Francisco. There's rumors he went to college. Corbett fought mostly exhibition fights. The thing is, when you look at box rec, Corbett's listed, I think, at 17 fights. And Corbett didn't have many fights because most of his fights, most of them were exhibitions. He wouldn't turn pro. It was looked down upon. Amateur boxing was considered the more legitimate sport at the time. Boy, has that changed. So Corbett had a lot of exhibitions. He turned down money to fight as a pro. So as a result, a lot of his fights just aren't counted because they weren't legitimate professional fights. So Corbett turns professional against his father's wishes. Father wanted him to become a priest. Begged him to stay at the bank because he could move up at the bank. Corbett fights. He has some really great fights. He has a fight with Joe Kowinski, Jewish Joe Kowinski. They knew each other since they were kids. They hated each other. And he knocked Kowinski out on the famous fight on a ship on a barge in Benicia Bay, uh, California. Fight went 26 rounds. Corbett has, is fighting different fighters. His most famous fight, other than Sullivan, was against Peter Jackson. He wanted to fight Sullivan. He knew he could beat Sullivan. And he went to see him in kind hearts and willing hands, Sullivan's play. And he went backstage and he spoke to him. And Sullivan said some things. And Corbett, you know, had the gall to look at him and say, well, you know, you're, you're rude. You're a bore. You're uncouth. And Sullivan had this sunny listen-like stare that would terrify people. And when he did that to Corbett, Corbett just laughed at him. So he Sullivan said, let's spar tonight in between acts of my play, except we're going to do it in our tuxedos. And they got out in the tuxedos, and they were just fooling around. They weren't really hitting each other. And Sullivan walked off stage and said to one of his ha handlers, 
He'll never learn anything from that. But he was wrong because he let Sullivan do all the leading and, and he looked at Sullivan and he watched how Sullivan tried to corner him. He watched Sullivan's footwork. He learned a lot from that. No one would fight the great Peter Jackson from Australia, who was 6'1", 215 pounds, really one of the first modern fighters to use his speed, you know, in, in the geography of the ring to use his reach. And he fought Corbett. And it was one of the greatest fights, if not the greatest fight of that era. It went 61 rounds, but then darkness came. Both men were exhausted, so they agreed to a draw. Now, when you look at Corbett, people will say, well, he was the first scientific boxer. That's not true. And when they say scientific, they mean the first guy that would circle an opponent, would bob and weave and throw a jab and, and, and think steps ahead. Yes, Corbett did think many punches ahead. But the first guy to really do that was Daniel Mendoza, the Jewish fighter, the Spanish Jew from Britain, who in the early 1800s would start moving around his opponent and circling them, making it more difficult for them because they could punch well. So they need, he knew they needed to stand flat-footed to get power on the shots, so he would move. And fighters would stop, and Corbett would complain, he should be disqualified, he's not fighting. And Mendoza said, there's no rule that says I have to stand here and let you punch me. Because that's what boxing was from the early 1700s until 1892. Guys would stand right in front of each other, I hit you, you hit me. Corbett changed that by moving and using angles. He knew how to frustrate his opponent. Corbett was very smart because, as I said, he thought many moves ahead. He would study his opponents. He'd go and watch all of their fights. He was ready for John L. Sullivan when he fought John L. Sullivan. And Corbett trained for this fight like a Spartan warrior. Corbett was really using modern training methods, running 15, 20 miles a day, every day, thousands of push-ups, thousands of sit-ups, hitting the, the speed bag, hitting the heavy bag, a real strict diet, no sugar, no alcohol, you know, fish, chicken, vegetables, no sweets, you know, getting his sleep, didn't, didn't read or, I mean, he was an avid reader, but didn't want to hurt his eyesight. So Corbett, was training, Sullivan was drinking and drinking and drinking. He was about 250 pounds about four months before the fight. William Muldoon, the great wrestler who had trained him for the Jake Hale Rain fight, and he was able to train him because he was physically bigger than Sullivan. And when Sullivan disagreed, he would bear hug him and he could beat Sullivan up. He could restrain him. So Sullivan had to respect him. And Sullivan got down to 205 pounds. He lost, like, he, before that fight, he was 265, so he'd lost 60 pounds. And that, that's the only reason why he could do that. He could go, you know, the distance, 75 rounds, because he'd been in such great shape. So they get someone else. They get a, the, the world handball champion to come in, and he starts to train Sullivan. And it's not easy, because he's, he's trying to hide the booze. Sullivan still had a little drink at night and he would go out to a bar and have a drink. And then he would also have a cake or two or three or four. He had prodigious appetite. He could sit down and eat three, four, five steaks. You know, the only person I know of throughout history, other than Henry VIII, who could eat like that was the jazz musician, Charlie Parker, who could sit there and down bottle after bottle of straight whiskey and, didn't bother him. He could just get up and go and do what he wants. Sullivan uh, 
used to engage in drinking contests. So his trainer at the time did his best, and he got Sullivan down to about 205, 208. He, he, Sullivan lost about 40 or so pounds. But by, by the time of the fight, the problem was his wind was gone. His reflexes were gone. He, you know, he, he was eight years older. He's only 34. You know, Golovkin's going to fight Canelo again in September, and Golovkin's 40. But they have access these days to modern training methods. They didn't back then. And also Sullivan didn't want to train. So Sullivan thought, this is just a kid. He's a punk kid. He's 24. This was only Corbett's fifth pro fight. Corbett, if you look on certain record uh, of Corbett online, you'll see it said he had 35, 40 fights. Well, if he had 35 fights in his career, a good 18 of them were exhibitions or amateur fights. So you can't count them as professional fights by any means. This was really only his his fifth pro fight. And, and this was a very important occasion in boxing history. The fight in New Orleans was the Carnival of Champions. Three fights in three days. First fight was lightweight champion Joe McAuliffe defending his title, which he did. Second fight the next day, September 6th, was the immortal Canadian George Dixon, who for some reason has not been given a stamp by Canada Post. George Dixon was the first black man to ever win a world boxing title, first black man to lose one, and the first black man to regain one. He was from Africville, Nova Scotia. He invented the speed bag, invented the heavy bag. He was also the first person not just to run distances. I mean, they'd been doing that before him, but he also would run short sprints. He fought a guy named Jack Skelly, who was really an amateur. And this was a very important fight because this was in the Deep South. And... It was the club where they were fighting was restricted. But Dixon wouldn't go on unless they allowed African-Americans in. So they allowed 700 African-Americans in who had to sit way up top in a segregated section. And Dixon, of course, carried Skelly for seven rounds and then easily knocked him out. The next day is the big fight between John L. Sullivan and James J. Corbett. How important was this fight? There were two, 300 reporters from all over the world. France, Italy, Germany, Japan, Britain. This was the most important heavyweight fight since the American, the Benicia boy, John C. Heenan, had lost to the Brit, Tom Sayers, in 1860. This was considered a world championship fight. It was held in this arena where they had over 60 huge lights and they had special seating. You had someone to take you to your seat, people arriving in carriages. And it was really a big affair. It was the first, it, they had a program, one of the first times that had happened in the United States. It had happened for hundreds of years in Britain. And these men despised each other. Sullivan really despised Charlie Mitchell, as I said, but he really hated Corbett. Most people hated Corbett. Joe Kowinski hated Corbett. Bob Fitzsimmons had to be restrained from shooting Corbett. He, he just despised him. Corbett had a way of getting under someone's skin. And just his attitude and putting on airs would really antagonize fighters. Corbett knew from when he first saw Sullivan, he used to be his hero until he met him and saw how much of a boor he was, that he could beat him. He was old, he was out of shape, he was short, 
Sullivan didn't have a defense. He knew nothing about blocking shots. He blocked them with his face. He tried to catch them with his arms, but barely would do that. Sullivan had no defense. He was a windmill slugger like you see in the schoolyard. That's what he would do. He would come in and he he would he would just come in and fight and he would um okay well i've been told there's something with the audio is the audio corrected uh is the audio corrected sorry for this i don't know i may have been talking to myself which is something i'm not too unfamiliar with um so I'll keep talking until they tell me otherwise. Uh, we're good. Okay. So here we have this fight. As I said, Sullivan would just come out and windmill. Corbett was a guy. He was really the first, first pure counterpuncher. He was the first guy that would take in the information like you see fighters do today. He'd watch what you do for the first couple of rounds. Take the information in. And then after he took the information in, he then would devise a plan for the entire fight. And so the fight starts, and Sullivan just comes rushing out, swinging wildly, and Corbett laughs at him and just moves away, and Sullivan goes flying into the ropes. Sullivan keeps doing this, and Corbett doesn't even throw a punch. He's just avoiding him. And Sullivan says to the referee, make him stand and fight. This is a real case in point throughout boxing history. The great Charlie Goldman, who trained Rocky Marciano, said no one ever invents a game just to be defeated at it. The whole key of the sport of boxing is to impose your will on your opponent. Make him fight your fight. There's no sense in fighting his fight. George Cambosis said that about Devin Haney. He wouldn't fight. Well, no, he's not going to stand and slug with you because that's your skill. His skill is actually boxing technique. And that was James J. Corbett. He's not going to stand and slug with a guy who's much stronger than him. And outweighs him by over 20 pounds. So this goes on for the first couple rounds, two, three rounds. Sullivan or Corbett throws a couple jab. In the third round, Sullivan's rushing. He can't get him. And after one of the rushes, he puts his arms on his hips and he bends over. He's out of breath. This is just the third round of a fight that's supposed to be 25 rounds. So Corbett moves in and just pounds him to the face repeatedly. You know, he's hitting him like you would hit a speed bag. Sullivan doesn't know how to slip a punch or slide a punch or duck. That, that's a skill he never learned. He didn't have to. He just walked out and beat people into the ground. And Corbett has no problem pounding him. And it's closing his eyes, breaking his nose, you know, cut his ears, shredding his lips. And Sullivan's taking a horrific beating. Third round, fourth round, fifth round, sixth round. He's going back to the corner after each round. And he's like, <gasps> you know, and the pulling his trunk, his, his tights out to let him breathe. Just keep breathing, John. And he can't catch his breath. He's gassed after three rounds. Corbett, because he hasn't trained. He's just, he drank. He trained by, he lost the weight, but he never worked on his, on his lung capacity. So he, he's, he's got no stamina. He can't breathe. And Corbett, who was running 15, 20 miles a day, every single day, uphill, and every other way is in great shape. He could go 15 rounds. And then you go in seventh round, eighth round, and Sullivan's getting battered. He's just basically standing there taking a beating. And ninth round, 10th round, and there's points now in the fight where 
you see this in some fights today where where he'll get hit a tremendous shot to the heart or a right hand to the chin and his head will fly back and the blood will come flying off and you hear the audience go ooh you know maybe someone should stop this but Corbett's not going to knock him out now he doesn't want to he wants to make him pay for all the insults and for his boorish behavior and he's pounding Sullivan relentlessly 15th round 17th round Sullivan is being helped back to his corner he's being given water he spits it out but he can't really take he can't even take the water because he can't breathe so he's more interested in catching his breath so he's dehydrating at the same time and then you know if you're an alcoholic obviously or if you know someone who is one of the problems of alcoholism is severe dehydration also destroying your liver as well so Sullivan or Corbett's making a point of hitting him left hook to the liver and Sullivan can feel that because he's taken so much abuse to his own liver from drinking 19th round 20th round and he's pounding him and he's hitting him and Sullivan at this point he's groggy his, his left eye is completely closed he can't see the right hand coming so you know, Corbett's changing the, the way he throws it and it's coming around, hitting him on the temple, and Sullivan just can't, he can't catch it. And if his eye was fine, he wouldn't catch it anyways because he didn't have the skill to do that. That wasn't who he was. So he's getting hit tremendous shots. And after the 20th round, Corbett's manager, William Brady, says to him, you know what? Uh, this guy is so loved in America and around the world. Let's try to avoid a fatality here, just get rid of him now. And he goes out in the 21st round, he cords him against the side ropes, hits him a left hook, hits him a right hand, Sullivan bounces from the ropes, comes forward, hits him a right hook, Sullivan goes down without bracing himself, face first. Not on the canvas, this was on actually a soil ground. It was a ring, elevated ring, but it was, the canvas was consisted of red clay. Sullivan's lying on the ground. The referee's counting. At about the count of five or six, Sullivan puts his left arm and right arm and tries to lift up his upper torso and then falls down unconscious into the clay. He feels like he's drowning, he said afterwards. And the fight is over. And Corbett's the new undisputed world heavyweight champion. You have to remember, these guys did not like each other, although after the fight, Sullivan, when he was helped to his corner, regained consciousness, quieted the crowd, and said, um, I lost because, he wouldn't give Corbett credit, he said, I lost because I, I had too much of the John Barley corn, too much of the alcohol, I didn't train as I should, but if I had to lose, I'm glad I lost to a fellow American. I think if Sullivan was in great shape, the best shape of his life, Corbett still would have beat him, because Corbett was a bigger man and a much more skilled fighter. So Sullivan retires after this fight. He's done. Goes back and he he travels around the country, does temperance tours, he does speaking tours, uh, and gives boxing exhibitions. Not where he gets in the ring, but he'll explain to people who get it's more classes than exhibitions. Corbett still got his career in front of him. So Corbett has the title 1892. And he holds it till 1897. He doesn't really have any fights. And then he, he goes on stage as well. The difference between Corbett and Sullivan and other champs before and after, Corbett was a gifted actor, you know, and 
he he was a member of Actors Equity. He really had talent as an actor. That's the surprising thing. So in those five years, he fights one exhibition with Sailor Tom Sharkey. And it's a four-round exhibition. Then he beats old Charlie Mitchell, who was quite old and decrepit at that time. But he hadn't really fought a hard fight. And he's being challenged by Bob Fitzsimmons. They just despise each other. Fitzsimmons is teasing him, calling him names. You can't fight. You're a bum. You won't fight anyone. How can you hold the title? I'm the champion. I'm fighting everyone. And Fitzsimmons, if you saw him, was a physical freak. From the waist down, he's a lightweight. Skinny legs. You could put your hands around his thighs on him. But, it's a bit of an exaggeration, but from the waist up, he was a blacksmith. He was a big, muscled heavyweight. And so they, they fight, and in the fight, Sullivan, excuse me, Sullivan, Fitzsimmons is doing his best, but Corbett is too much. Corbett's beating him. Corbett knocks him down in the sixth round and breaks Fitzsimmons' nose. Fitzsimmons is bleeding from the mouth above both eyes, and he's barely hanging on. And comes up for, I think it was the 14th or 15th round, and his wife says, yells out, hit him in the slats, which meant it was a British term, although he was from Cornwall, New Zealand, and trained and learned boxing in Australia, hit him in the solar plexus. And so he did the shift where he was an orthodox fighter, put his right leg forward, his left leg back to get leverage, hit a left hand into Corbett's solar plexus. We've never seen that or heard of it being used before. It probably was, but what makes this unique was it was caught on tape. You can go to YouTube and see that punch. Corbett, like anyone who's been hit in the solar plexus, can't breathe. <gasps> Breathing just stops. He goes down on one knee. He gets up. He doesn't realize what's going on. He's crawling to the ropes. He tries to get up. He can't beat the count. And he loses the title. Now Bob Fitzsimmons is the world champion, the heavyweight champion of the world. Corbett wants a rematch. And there could have been a rematch, but Fitzsimmons just said no. You know, he said, I hate you to such an extent, and you were so vile to me. I don't want to give you the opportunity to win your title back. Story doesn't end there. Fitzsimmons holds the title for a short time, and then he takes on James J. Jeffries, who was a sparring partner for James J. Corbett. So Fitzsimmons is cutting Jeffries to pieces. Jeffries is similar to Sullivan, except he's bigger and stronger. He's 6'2", he's 225, matted hair all over him. He's like a grizzly bear. Fitzsimmons is cutting him to shreds because Jeffries had no defense. He didn't know how to block punches. He just came forward and used his overwhelming strength to beat you. And he's beating up Jeffries until Jeffries catches him later in the fight, hits him several shots to the chin, knocks Fitzsimmons out cold. Jeffries is the new champ. And... No one wants to fight him. He's too big. No one wants a piece of him. And they said, well, how about James J. Corbett? You sparred with him. And now, now Jeffries is being managed by William H. Brady, who was former manager of Corbett. And so they fight. And once again, Corbett goes overdrive in training. Jeffrey doesn't train that much because Corbett's older. He's in his middle to late 30s. He doesn't think he can beat him. 
And Corbett outboxes him for most of the fight until the later rounds, into the, I think the 21st or 22nd round. He's, he's outboxing him, and he's getting tired, but he's still winning the fight by a wide margin. And if it had gone the distance, four more rounds, uh, Corbett would have been the first fighter to ever regain the world heavyweight title. Fitzsimmons gets him on the side ropes, hits him a couple jabs, hits him a right hand. Corbett bounces off the ropes, loses his balance, and as he's coming back, Fitz, uh, Jeffries hits him with a huge, brutal right hand. Corbett's out before he hits the ground. And people were amazed that a guy at 37 could give a young 20-something champion a boxing lesson like that. So they have a rematch a while later, except this time he stops Corbett in six rounds because Corbett's closer to 40, and he just doesn't have it left in him to take the punishment that Jeffries is handing out. And Corbett goes and appears on Broadway, appears so successfully, and he, he's got a huge fan base. He tries to mend fences with different fighters like Joe Kowinski, who agreed to be his friend. Corbett also was in the corner along with Sullivan, not with Sullivan, but there's a great video of them. When Jeffries got destroyed by Jack Johnson, and you could see Jeffries uh, during the fight, you could see Corbett's yelling at Johnson, all these horrible, racial, vicious things, and there's foam spewing out of his mouth. That's how virulent a bigot he was. The amazing thing about that fight, Jeffries Johnson, is when they show Jeffries' training camp, and it's the only tape I know of of John L. Sullivan. Now, you look at him, he's all, all gray hair, big gray walrus mustache. And I first thought, well, he's 75 years old at, at that point. He was 51, 51, 52. He had aged tremendously. And it's only in those brief five seconds you get a glimpse of how he would hold his hands like this, and he would fake a left like this around, and come over with the right hand. That's the way he fought. That's the only glimpse we ever got of it. Uh, they they weren't going to shake hands, and then they both smiled and shake hands. And then the next day, Corbett was, or Fitz, sorry, John O'Sullivan was banned from the camp by rule of Jeffries and Corbett because Sullivan wrote in his syndicated article that unless uh, James Jag Jeffries has mounted cavalry and field artillery, there's no way on earth he's going to beat Jack Johnson. And he was right. Corbett lives until 1933, dies of liver cancer at the age of 66. Uh, he lived in Bayshore uh, in the borough of Queens, and he was buried in Brooklyn. The great John L. Uh, lived to the age of 60, where he died in 1918 in Boston. John L. was married three times. Um, the last time he was married, or the first time, excuse me, had a child that died at two years of age from diphtheria. And he's, he's a conundrum because although he drew the color line, he really was close friends and a financial supporter of George Dixon. And when Dixon was dying and died before him, in, in um, 1908 at Bellevue Hospital, they asked Dixon, the intake nurse, do you have any friends or family? He said, John O'Sullivan's the only person on earth that cares about me. So it's, it's interesting to look that Sullivan, who was a bigot and racist, still cared a lot about Dixon. 
a lot of people think it's because Dixon was was light skinned black man. I don't know if that's true why he liked him or not, but um, that was just the way John O'Sullivan was. I can't excuse his racism. I can't, in my estimation, it's just my opinion, consider him to be the first world heavyweight champion because gloved heavyweight champion because he wouldn't fight the best fighters out there. He was the first white, the best white heavyweight in the world at that point, but he wasn't the best heavyweight in the world at that point. You could say James Corbett was, because although he had drawn the color line, he did fight the great Peter Jackson. The two men never made peace. There's that movie from with Errol Flynn and Ward Bond in 1942, where Ward Bond and John O'Sullivan comes to his party after and shakes his hand and says, you know, I'm proud to have lost to an American like you. Never happened. They despised each other to the end. Uh, John L., actually became a temperance man. He swore off alcohol after the Corbett fight, and he kept to his word. He never touched it again. However, all the previous abuse he'd taken, he'd given to himself, and he'd taken from the bottle, shortened his life. This was the first truly modern boxing match held in an arena advertised months beforehand, promoted by professionals that drew the attention, not only of everyone in the United States, but the entire world. Everyone was interested in the outcome of this fight. And people were listening all over the world, wherever they were, what's going on in the fight? What's going on? And they would go to their local telegraph office uh, to find out. So September 7th, 1892, James J. Corbett knocks out old John L. Sullivan 21st round to become the first modern undisputed heavyweight champion of the entire world. I'm Lou Eisen. Hope you enjoyed this. This is Ring Talk. Have a great weekend.